Welcome to Hard Truths by Vertex. This is where we peel the layers and uncover raw, unobvious industry insights and venture capital knowledge across Southeast Asia and India. We interview some of the world's top leaders in tech, innovation and capital formation to hear the stories of enlightening discoveries as well as aha moments to help early stage entrepreneurs navigate their building journey. If you like what you hear, please click follow or subscribe. Hi, I'm Elise Tan and I'm your host for this episode of Hard Truth by Vertex Podcast. Today, I'm really happy to have Wai Hong Fong, co-founder and chieftain of StoreHub. Hi, Wai Hong. Hey, Elise. How's it going? Good. So StoreHub is the leading operating system for over 15,000 retail and F&B businesses across Southeast Asia. One interesting fact, Wai Hong has been named one of Australia's most entrepreneurs. One interesting fact. Wai Hong was named one of Australia's uh, best young entrepreneurs, as well as Melbourne's top 100 most influential people by the age. It's uh, really good to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Great. Uh, recently, I know that you celebrated the 10th anniversary of starting StoreHub. How has been the journey for you? 10 years. Wow. Um, I mean, it's definitely been a roller coaster of a ride. I feel like the, I mean, to describe it in a simple single sentence would be really difficult, but um, I think it's been a really meaningful journey uh, overall. And there's been so much, um, I guess, growth over the years, so much opportunity to really, uh, yeah, like do something really meaningful in this region, especially for the businesses that we work with, the small and medium businesses. Um, and it's yeah, really good to have Vertex as a partner along these 10 years. It's not been an easy journey, but it's always better when uh, you have good partners with you. Yeah, that's great to hear. And at Vertex, we are definitely honoured to have partnered you, I guess, since 2017? Yeah, yeah. I think we officially did the deal end of 2017. Mm. Uh, and yeah, we've been working with uh, Juha, Carmen and the Vertex team as a whole uh, for almost what, five or six years now. I think it's been, yeah, so it's been quite a while now. Wow. And uh I know that StoreHub started as a point of sale uh, operating system and it's been growing ever since. Maybe you share a little bit about how your product has grown over the years. Yeah, so when we first started, we were just a simple iPad point of sale. And um, and the iPad point of sale was our entry point into to the businesses that we are working with, right? It's the most basic system that most of these businesses need. Um, but over the years, we've really been able to dive deeper into the challenges, into the needs of uh, specifically small and medium retail and restaurant businesses uh, and figure out how do we leverage the fact that we have this core operating system starting with the point of sale um, and we're you know, able to stack on top of this other ways to create value, whether it's in inventory, in customer management, in loyalty, in omni-channel type work, you know, whether it's taking orders online, taking orders in store through the QR code. There's just so many different things that we are able to support a business in doing. And so really, really today, we're no longer just that simple iPad point of sale that we started with. Uh, we're an operating system for the businesses that we work with, almost like as essential as Windows is for your PC or you know, Mac OS is for your Mac. Can you tell us an example where maybe a, a company that used your product was really young at that point and then they grew bigger and bigger and used more and more of your products along the way? Yeah. Um, I mean, so many examples of these companies that have started out with us as a single single product or single store to be, to be more specific. 
um, and uh, have grown. I mean, Flash Coffee is one of them. You know, they started mm-hmm. with us with their first store. Um, and now there are 300 over stores. Uh, we've got a, a whole bunch of other businesses, uh, whether that's in retail as well. Uh, I think we have a business called Bora Korean Mart. I think they were they started in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, one store now, there are over 50 stores. They're one of, the most, uh, one of the most interesting Korean grocery stores in Thailand. So, I mean, there's just so many examples of businesses who've started out very similarly to us, right? Very humble, single stores, small, but with... Uh, big ambitions to really serve the market that they are they are aiming for. I think one of the things that Verte is always excited about is how our companies are enabling MSMEs, SMEs in the region, mm. and definitely StoreHub has been doing that. But I know that it's been you know really a journey of ups and downs. What are some of the hard truths you actually experienced building, um, you know, providing to the FMB and retail business? You know, we we're just looking at kind of like stats globally. Uh, SME businesses, restaurants specifically, and, and even retailers, um, you know, a lot of them closed down in the first two years. And we're talking about high double digit numbers, right? Or high t- double digit percentages. And so I think the first hard truth is that we're serving a market where the struggle to survive, the struggle to build a successful, sustainable business is very real. And that's the first hard truth. And of course, the question is therefore, you know, before you're even worrying about so-called competitors, the first most important challenge or the first most confronting thing is how do you support these guys to even be successful? Yeah, so I think that's a really the first hard truth I would say is it's the challenge of sustainability in this sector. Um, and we have, because of the number of years, you know, we talk about 10 years being in the market, because of our experience in the market, we've seen these certain patterns, right, emerge from supporting these businesses over that period of time. And so a lot of technology that we're building automates a lot of the critical kind of opportunities that SME businesses have to build sustainable businesses that they have historically struggled with in the past because of uh, a lack of, you know, call it scale, talent, ability to hire the right people to the organization. So I think that's something that's really interesting for us to have discovered over that journey and then to solve for hard truth, hard solution, but very meaningful outcomes. Yeah, I love that you are almost like an incubator for the F&B retail business. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And that's so key because um, even in Singapore, I once looked at the number of F&B businesses that are registered in one year. Mm. And, you know, at the end of it, actually at least half would close. So it's really, you know, challenging as a sector. Mm. We recently actually published our monthly column in the Business Times on assessing F&B businesses Mm. and understanding, you know, what kind of models will be, can be, VC backable. So I also want to kind of understand because you mentioned about uh, the challenge of meeting the, I mean, kind of serving the sector due to the high kind of churn, you know, in a way, then then discovery become very important, you know, discovery of your product, right? So how, how do you make sure that happens? You know, someone set up a new restaurant and they know that, hey, uh, new store hub. Yeah, so I think for us, the first and foremost thing is, we have a very strong process when it comes to engaging these businesses. And there is a really important distinction that we have made between how we build this process as compared to say an enterprise SaaS or enterprise software business, right? Typically in enterprise software, you know, you, you have uh, really experienced or qualified salespeople that have very long sales cycles who take a while to build relationship. Um, and that's generally the, the path that many businesses have walked down 
in the you know in the past. Um, but for us, we recognize that because we're serving primarily the SME layer, you know, we have to structure our process and our, our approach uh, very differently. And that approach starts with uh, really a very holistic view of marketing because channel attribution these days is not as simple as the last person or the person that visited Google and went onto your website. Their website is the best channel, right? Um, and the truth is it's not necessarily your website that's doing all the work, right? It's oftentimes there's an ad that you showed a couple months ago that they saw that someone told them about something a couple of weeks ago. And depending on where a person is at in their customer buying cycle, um, they would engage with you on the different channels appropriately. And it feeds into our obsessiveness about the sales process itself. Like everything from the first call to the deck, to the way that we bring on people and the way we resource and train our people, all of that is very um, intentional, very, I would say it's almost, not even almost, I think we're obsessive about that kind of process. I think one of the biggest distinctions we've seen, or at least the feedback we've gotten uh, from you know VCs or investors or the startup ecosystem as a whole uh, is that a lot of startups, especially in the B2B SaaS space, um, often don't build a strong focus on selling mm. because they're resource, right? Mm. So it's easier to sell by giving stuff away mm-hmm. than, than actually demonstrating meaningful value, right? And so if a startup is resourced very heavily, it's, you know, it's discounts, it's uh, very, very low barriers to entry. Um, But I think for us from day one, I've always felt that's really, really important that we demonstrate value, that we bring people on a journey and tell them the story that we want them to be a part of. Um, Yeah, that for me has been super important for us uh, from the beginning. I love the obsession with, you know, the process, the data-driven approach. I want to understand, you know, what led you to start um, uh, StoreHub and then uh, who did you bring on your ship? I grew up as a really geeky um, kid, right? I was hacking computers in school. I was playing a lot of computer games. I failed five subjects at university because I was playing too many computer games. And so after I did all of that, I ended up in Shanghai, studying Chinese uh, because I was a typical Malaysian banana who could not speak, you know, uh, Chinese, even though I look very Chinese. Um, and, uh, and when I was there, you know, I got a chance to meet some really interesting people. And I met people um, who were working with Jack Ma very closely as strategy folks. And they were sharing with me specifically about the interesting transformation journey that China went through in the last so-called 20 years and the role specifically that technology played in that kind of transformation. And I met a, uh, an entrepreneur who was running a chain of lingerie retail stores in China. He showed me this system he implemented and I was like, oh my God, this is like Windows 95. It's so clunky. So it looks like, so, oh my God, what's this, right? And, and, and I was like, really connecting the dots between that experience of, I guess I call it like a holy discontent. I was so frustrated with the experience of looking at this guy suffering through this expensive but painful system with these bigger ideas of where does commerce go? Where is it heading? You know, right now it's dichotomized between online retail and offline retail and their separate worlds, but eventually they're all amalgamate into just commerce powered by technology, right? And the question for me was, wow, as a technologist, the opportunity to stand in a gap and support these businesses in this transition was a really exciting opportunity. 
And so for us, even the name Store Hub was birthed out of this uh, kind of like melting pot of all these different ideas where we see ourselves as that kind of like center of the store, enabling these businesses to transition meaningfully into this inevitable future. So that's really how Store Hub starts. <laughs> well, that's such an incredible journey. I I don't have the chance to you know work in Hong, uh, China yet, and but I can imagine you know how quickly China has been transformed through technology is amazing. Um, and I know that you know, your co-founder Chong Yu is uh, very geeky as well. <laughs> she is the CTO of uh, StoreHub. Yeah. How did you both meet? I met Chong Yu uh, in in Shanghai at a Christmas party for in like in a, for for startups. Um, and she was invited by a common friend and I was invited as well. And, and we did our first conversation, our first meeting. I think we spoke for almost three hours, you know, so it was oh, really yeah. kind of like that really connection that you have with someone that you've never met before. It was really meaningful, right? So about a week later, she would send me an email saying, hey, Wai Hong, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and I would love to work on some of these ideas that you were sharing with me at the like party. Um, and by the way, you know, if you hear some of some background about me, and that's where she goes on about, oh no, I won two national programming competitions in China. I was the you know top 1% of employees in Microsoft globally. And I was the chairperson of the women at work at Microsoft. And of course, you know, it, was just, it came across as uh, really someone that's really impressive. But at the same time, you know, I knew that she was incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent. Um, so that's really how we started working together. Uh, you know, just out of my apartment in Shanghai, that was where we started coding. Uh, I remember I, I would say that I coded something like 30% of the original first version of Storehub. She would argue maybe a bit less. Uh, and that's where we, first time we agree to disagree. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think that's really how, how we met uh, and, and started working together. Um, and yeah, and she continues to lead our, our engineering team in Shanghai. We actually wrote about uh, Chong Yu, mm. you know, during International Women's Day last year. Yeah. yeah I recall about how, how both of you met and uh, how she's really strong in her programming. And she's really one of the rare CTO who is a female. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's also cool. not a typical CTO, right? She's like mm. personable, very likable, um, super high EQ. Um, and, and I think really at, at the core of it, she cares so much about the product, so much about the customer. Um, yeah, just, it's just really, really rare. I think one of the only female CTOs I know in, in, in the startup world. Yeah, nice. How did you both meet uh, Vertex? Um, so I remember quite specifically getting a LinkedIn message from Juhok. Oh. Um, and uh, he was like, you know, uh, hi, Wai Hong, you know, I, uh, I, I'll be in KL and I'll be, uh, looking to talk to startups and you're one of the startups that, you know, were, were recommended to me. Would you be you know, free? And I was, at the time, I think we were really struggling with trying to figure out uh, a meaningfully good investor for our series A. And we got a couple already, but they were generally the smaller, uh, smaller investors. Uh, and so when, when Juhok sent me that LinkedIn message, I remember specifically telling Chong Yu, wow, hey, you know, Vertex, Vertex is interested. They're like, you know, the investors in all these other companies. And then she's like, oh, okay, that's really cool. And so I met with Juhok. Um, I think we got from first meeting in term sheet in like two weeks or something like that. Uh, so very, very quick. Um, and yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey since. I've been with Vertex for nearly two years now and uh, my colleagues and I, we're always talking about how impressed we are with Joe Hawk's tentacles. <laughs> so, <laughs> somehow, you know, besides his heavy workload, his man, he knows who to reach out to. So that is interesting. Yeah. His secret sauce. Yes. So, uh, wow, nice. Um, 
and to let you know that uh, you know we actively invest in different uh, hubs around Southeast Asia and uh, in Malaysia. You know, uh, you must be one of the bright sparks because um, you know it's it's really uh, yeah making a wrong statement. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Let me just remove that. So um, yeah, so so. Uh, great to have uh, invested in Stock Hub and partner you on our journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to kind of go back to the finding investor bit, right? Because um, definitely South Asia is still very nascent compared to other ecosystems. For example, it's the Silicon Valley. Um, what are some of the hard truths that you experience while fundraising? And what would you tell a new entrepreneur? I guess it's very easy for founders to get caught up in optimizing for the wrong things. Um, and in, in this case, a lot of the wrong things are you know, things like price or valuation, or, uh, I guess the, the brand names, uh, of the partners or the investors they have. And while those things are technically important in the sense that yeah, at the end of the day, fundraising is, uh, has, you know, optics plays a big part of that process. Um, at the end of the day, you are running a business, and you're running a business and you're looking for in the fundraising process, partners to journey with you. Uh, and so I think for me, that is a hard truth that uh, I've had to work through and I've had a chance to talk to a lot of my fellow entrepreneurs about um, that we have had to learn. Um, the, the right partner is infinitely more important than the price of the, the investment or the optics of the name of the investor, right? And so, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the big ones. Um, The other hard truth is realizing that investors don't invest just because you're a good company. Uh, There's so many reasons for an investor to invest, but there's even more reasons why they don't invest. And half the time, it's kind of like... The, it's not you, it's me kind of like situation, right? Where an investor does not invest, not because of what you are, but because of what they are or what they have a thesis around. And so pulling all these things together over the years, you know, having met hundreds of investors, hundreds of calls and pitches, uh, I've come to that very absolute clarity not to take anything personally. I think someone mentioned the other day in the founders gathering, there's on the founder's job is to ask and get said no to 95% of the time, but continue to ask. And that's something that I, I recognize is absolutely true. I agree. Um, we say, we talk a lot about uh, investor founder fit. Mm. It's especially true for uh, Vertex Ventures because we actually invest in very few companies. If you were to compare kind of our fund AUM with uh, other funds. Mm. Yeah. What, how would you describe is uh, investor founder fit for Vertex? I was just talking to an investor earlier today and I was describing Vertex and specifically, I guess, Juhok as the kind of founder, as the kind of investor that has no other motivation but to see the company succeed. I think what Juhok and Vertex brings to the table is a very long view, a very mature view of how they see value creation in a really new or nascent ecosystem. And I, I have a great appreciation for for that specifically because as founders, the reality is that we're fundamentally about creating meaningful value. And, and that 
fit of values that we're here on this journey together to create value, not just for ourselves and our brighter careers and better CVs and nicer LinkedIn profiles, but for the customers that we're serving, for the LPs and investors that we are offering a return for, um, not just financially, but in the kind of impact that they are creating in the world because they are putting money alongside uh, VCs like Vertex and founders like us. That's really nice to hear. And, uh, you know, we are really glad to uh, invest in companies like yours, which are mission-driven, customer, you know, having that customer centricity and always focusing on delivering value. How did you know that, um, you know, there is, you're getting to a product market fit for StoreHub? You know, what was, yeah, do you remember <laughs> that moment? How would you describe it? I think one of the, the, the question of product market fit um, is a, uh, is defined so differently for many different people. Um, I think when we came into the market first, we had less of a consider uh, less of an issue with product market fit, um, more of an issue of scaling the process of uh, engaging enough people around the product, right? Um, and, and I would say that uh, that is really uh, our journey. It's 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 always been less about uh, overall product market fit and more about how we actually execute on scaling the process, right? Um, and I think the other consideration also about product market fit is it's a dynamic thing. The market is not a static, you know, uh, entity that just sits there waiting for you to, to create fit, right? Mm -hmm. There is a massive amount of change that's happening in, in industry, in the market, in the needs and demands of, of these businesses. Um, COVID, for example, uh, was massive for, for FMB businesses and retail businesses. The, the shift of uh, an adoption of mobile technology and the, the infrastructure that supports um, these devices, all of this play into um, the market. So I would say product market fit is an ongoing journey that we have continuously improved on and that we see fit uh, as uh, really not so much a one-time thing, um, but how efficient are we at that first part of connecting what we are doing with our customers. And so for us, I would say that there's, you know, having been around for 10 years, we've had different journeys. And from the beginning, it was, we were simply solving for the fact that people couldn't even get data off their on-premise devices. And in the middle of the pandemic, it could be, you know, delivery. But uh, today we're seeing a lot more opportunity with labor shortages and we're seeing opportunities with uh, connecting better with your customers. So there's so much that the market is shifting on a constant basis. You mentioned about COVID and I was going to ask you about it. You know, mm. how did you come up with a product to enable FMB businesses to continue to, you know, deliver uh, the food to um, people in uh, the customers in Malaysia? Tell yeah. us more about it. When the first lockdowns were announced, top of mind for me was the reality that if businesses are not allowed to have people come into their store, what are the ramifications here? Um, the, so there was so much literature going around around the working capital and reserves that SME businesses had and it was measured in days, mm -hmm. right? 21 days, 30 days. And so what that means is that if revenue is basically cut off completely, which it was happening in that way, um, 
these businesses had, were, were going to have to sort of scramble to figure out how to survive. And so for me, as I was putting all these together, what was clear to me, especially for the restaurants, is that, okay, the first thing they're going to do is going to figure out how to continue to sell but doing delivery, right? But then, of course, the marketplaces are going to be swamped with requests from all these businesses who had not done it before. Plus the fact they were structured for an environment where food delivery was a, a secondary or an extra thing. And so their pricing structures uh, were also structured in a very similar manner. They were 30% um, take rates on, on the entire value of the product. Like F&B businesses are not businesses with massive margins, right? They're working on really thin net margins, usually closer to 10%. And so when you take away 30%, that's it. Like these businesses are just, it's just, a, you know, waiting to die, even though you've got revenue from delivery. And so the natural tendency and uh, that we expected was for businesses to want to do uh, direct kind of like delivery where they are taking orders on WhatsApp from their customers and they are trying to uh, find a rider themselves. And if there are any issues in the process, they have to solve for these issues. So you have business owners, like they will show, they will show us pictures of uh, their home office looking like a call center because they were coordinating all these different things. Um, and, and so we were like, no, 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 we need to step in and help them with technology solve for the ordering process, the payment process, the logistics process and the customer service process. You know, this is a typical B2B SaaS company that basically overnight turned into like all our different teams and mobilized them to build for this experience. And the first thing we did was launch the platform. Uh, our teams, our product and engineering teams, and actually everyone, not just the product engineering teams, pulled together uh, within 48 hours. So we scrambled into our war rooms um, and worked almost 20 hour days for those couple of days. And that was essentially what we did. Um, so yeah, that was when beep delivery started in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and it was a critical part of supporting businesses. We had businesses come to us later on saying, you know, my accountant was telling me if not for beep delivery, you guys shut down already, you know. And there was such heartwarming, you know, like just heartwarming stories for us to hear and, and feel that the connection between what we're doing and the real survivability of these businesses. Yeah. It's definitely very heartwarming, and uh, it's incredible how you met, how you and your founders, you know, managed to bring your whole team together, organize them, and be able to produce a product that's usable in forty eight hours. I think that's really hats off to you guys. Um, we're talking about um, you know F and B business owners burning through their entire savings, uh, personal savings, and and so yeah. So I mean, it's it's a really difficult. Uh, it was a really difficult time, but uh, we're just really grateful for the chance to support these guys in, in such a time as that. So I guess, you know, now that we have um, the pandemic behind us, there's also changes in the capital markets recently due to, I guess, um, you know, the rising interest rates, of course. What have you seen, Wai um, Hong, you know, in terms of the changes to maybe the fundraising environment? To be honest, like, I felt like the people that are most affected negatively by these changing capital markets were the ones that were... Um, riding the COVID wave, I guess, in a positive way, right? So there were a lot of startups that uh, uh, were really, you know, uh, doing very well in the middle of COVID because capital markets were, were also kind of like uh, going kind of upwards in that, in that way. Um, and those companies have struggled, right? I think for us, it's kind of the reverse where the COVID years were really, really challenging years because we were working alongside not other uh, tech startups, but uh, more on the ground F&B retail entrepreneurs. 
And then post-COVID, like we were, we were kind of like growing as well. And I think to a certain degree, when it comes to fundraising, um, because we've never really pursued a grow at all cost strategy, uh, we've never really pursued um, incredibly kind of like difficult to imagine multiples of revenue. Uh, it's not actually been as bad as I guess people put it out to, to seem. Um, for us as a company, every single round that we've raised in the past, we've had the discipline to say, all right, we've got this money now, but what is our plan to get to cash flow break even in 18 months from the time that the money hits the bank from that particular round? So we've had this discipline since 2016, since our first ever round. I came from a bootstrap background. So it's just this part of my DNA, right? Um, that always felt that, no, 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 if we're going to have validation for the value that we're creating, it needs to lead us towards a kind of efficiency about running a business that doesn't require reliance on the next round to survive, to thrive, to continue to grow meaningfully. Um, so as a result, I think, yeah, I you know we, we, are, we raised a round last year. Um, we're on track to cash flow break even and uh, by by the end of the year. And so I think, yeah, to some degree, it's, I wouldn't say we're shielded, but I would say that um, we are less uh, so-called frantic about uh, the changing capital markets because of our approach towards how we see capital being utilized in the business. Yeah, I think in terms of investor philosophy, there's that definitely an alignment, right? You know, in terms of, uh, being disciplined and not choosing growth at all costs. Yep. And then I think the other part is um, how founders navigate their leadership and building a culture that, you know, is strong, that is unique. So tell us more about, you know, what you do at StoreHub. You know, culture building as a journey that I started um, even before StoreHub. You know, I, I started thinking a lot about as a young entrepreneur in my first business. Um, what does it mean to build an organization that is meaningfully considering uh, for the important things uh, that we say are important, right? Uh, in the company. And, and today we have this word to define it called culture. But in very, very simplistic forms, culture is simply the things that we do or don't do and the things that we reward and don't reward. Um, and so for us at StoreHub, you know, one of the biggest uh, shifts that we had to make in forming for uh, the defined language of, of our culture is uh, this idea of moving away from what we you know, call the, the family culture uh, to what we call the pro sports team culture. And I think for a company of our nature as an organization which has ambitions to build um, a platform to enable businesses to survive, to succeed uh, in this kind of changing environment that we actually have a very growth-oriented, performance-oriented culture. Um, but we needed to have language for that. Uh, someone once told me that if you want to change culture, you change the language. True. Um, because, you know, that's the, the, the words that we use effectively form the behaviors. Uh, and so we thought very hard about this and we, f we spent years formulating the words, rethinking, thinking, working together. And, and I felt it wasn't something you, you, you funnel off to your head of HR. It's something that, you know, me as a founder, personally, I feel in, a, a great amount of ownership is required. So I spent a lot of time writing up our culture code. Mm -hmm. Um, the words, the values, the way it all connects together. Today we say, you know, Storehub is a place that we want 
to see that people will thrive and that means growth and meaningful work. And then we would translate that and we would say like, okay, what does it mean to have a growth culture? Well, okay, it means that when we do our monthly performance and reflection ratings, if someone, if a leader is not giving good feedback, HR will put them aside. You know? like for example, if you said, uh, how do you think this person could improve next month? And maybe the manager goes, uh, not much. <laughs> they, they actually get pulled aside, right? Mm-hmm. And because for us, feedback is a huge part of our culture. And reflection is a huge part of a culture. And, and so for me, it's a end-to-end consideration of what is the language? Okay, pro sports team, we're here to win together, so on and so forth. But also how does this language translate into actual practices, actual things that we do? Um, another thing that we also talked about quite often is this idea of meaningful work. How do we work well together? How do we see our work as a bigger, as, as an important part of the bigger picture of what we're all doing together? Um, you know, for many companies, um, the employees, sometimes they, they talk about uh, toxic culture. But the reality is that this idea of toxic culture is sometimes linked to uh, the reality of people not having the skills to work well together. And so I think for us, you know, it's, it's something that's really important. And we go down to the basics. How can we help people understand that? to translate it into you know, a meaningful way to, to run culture. So yeah, it's just a nutshell, really. I think culture is, is not just words. It's not something you farm off to your head of HR. It has to come from the top in defining it, but in also in empowering the processes and the structures to make it a reality. I think it's a combination of all these things. Yes, it's, it's really not easy. Mm. I used to work in uh, Procter & Gamble. So we call it, we also had, they had a very strong culture and they call it proctorization whenever somebody new comes in, you know, and I will call yours, you know, harborization. <laughs> well, we, we have a session that I run called Cultivate. Ah, yes. Every single month, I would uh, sit down for two hours. Actually, thank you. I'm standing up, yes, sitting down um, with new co- new joiners of the company. So every month I would run this session uh, and it's, uh, it's the point of communicating the language yeah. uh, in un- filtered uh, kind of like, you know, un, unwatered down terms. And then uh, that's something I still do to this day. I've been doing for 10 years and I think it's a very important part of not so much harborization, but I guess cultivating the right culture. Yeah, yeah I, I think that makes uh, being a founder tough, mm. but at the same time, you know, you you you, you are really an important piece of the whole business. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, I really enjoyed the conversation with you, Wai Hong. Likewise. You know, uh, you have uh, been through such an amazing journey and uh, there are so many things that we learn from you, you know, from all your sharing. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Before we close, do remember to check out the podcast notes via the link in the episode description. We have for you the entire episode transcript, bite-sized summaries, and a wealth of other resources and content that we're sure you'll love. Also, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do spread the word and give us a thumbs up. It would help others find the show and mean a lot to us. Thank you for joining us. This is Hot Truths by Vertex. See you next time.